1987, director Rob Reiner and star Andre the Giant gave the world a hilariously <laughs> epic children's story that will sweep you off your feet. In 2022, we return to Ireland to try another in a long line of popular whiskeys. The film is The Princess Bride. The whiskey is Bushmills Red Bush. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1987 film The Princess Bride. We're rounding out a mini series of three movies by director Rob Reiner. And we have gone kind of out of, I don't know why I said kind of, we've gone out of chronological order here. We started in 1990 with Misery. We jumped ahead a couple years to A Few Good Men. And now we are returning to the late 80s with our buddy Rob to look at The Princess Bride. Perhaps his most beloved film? Question mark. I mean, probably his most famous. I don't know, man. When Harry Met Sally, he's got to be up there in both categories. Oh, yeah, that's true. And a few and good how, men. I just like the man just makes good make, movies. <laughs> I was going to say, how did he make such good movies, man? I mean, listen to this run. So he he does. This is Spinal Tap in 84. He follows it up in 85 with a movie called The Sure Thing, which is not a classic, but it's a well-liked movie. He follows that up in 86 with Stand By Me, then The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. All back to back. Wow. <laughs> like, what a run. I was going to say, tell me how many directors have a run of six, seven movies like that. It's, that it's, are, like, it's kind of insane. Like, that are all B to A minus movies. With a few like true all stars peppered in there, mm -hmm. like like when Harry Met Sally is one of the best romantic comedies of all time. Well, and The Princess Bride, and and of course we're going to get into talking about this today. But like I said, it has not just a cult following, right? It's not like a small group of people, but there is a devoted fan base of The Princess Bride. And Brad, mm -hmm. I you know I remember I dated a girl in college that was really into the princess bride and her whole family had watched it when they were growing up and she knew every line and like I, that wasn't me that wasn't my experience growing up but uh something tells me that they're not the only ones that are like that i know that this is an endlessly quotable film and there are a lot of people out there that hold this screenplay by william goldman in really high regard yeah and uh, and i will say like my first time watching it was i think sophomore year of high school i was on a school field trip out to boston and i remember some friends had like a you remember the portable dvd players <laughs> oh yeah they were watching the princess bride and i watched like three minutes of it with them right when they're in the fire swamp and the men, like the the rodents of unusual size, who are clearly just men in really gross, <laughs> yeah, rodent costumes, yeah. like attacked him. And I just looked at my friends and I was like, "What are you watching? <laughs> this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life." And they were like, "Oh, it's uh, the Princess Bride. It's a great movie, man." And I was like, "No, nah, no, nah, this is not a great movie. This is terrible." <laughs> and so I just. Went for many, many years after that. It probably wasn't until like post college where I watched it and was like, oh, this is a great movie. Mm -hmm. 
So here's where I'm at with The Princess Bride. It's really hard for me to know what elements of this movie are done on purpose and which ones aren't. And I don't mean like the silly elements of it or things like that. But, you know, you're talking about the the rodents of unusual size. I actually loved (laughs) that scene in this movie, Uh, even though you could clearly tell that it was people in a large rodent costume. Yep. Because there was something about the way that those things jumped on Carrie Elwes's character. (laughs) And there's like such a weight to it. And you can tell that he's really fighting with something on camera in real life. And after years and years and years of horrible CGI, everything that has a weightlessness to it, I was like, I would take this any day of the week over another CGI rat. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. And like the other part of it is they say that like, Every comedy is all about timing, right? Mm-hmm. The moment when he says, oh, what line does he say? Oh, he goes, rodents of unusual size? Uh, I don't think they exist. <laughs> yeah, boom. And, then, and it's like <laughs> the moment. <laughs> and I think that's like, it illustrates everything that Reiner does properly in this movie, that mm-hmm. his his comedic timing I don't know if we've seen many directors with better comedic timing than Rob Reiner. Well, so that gets me back to what I was just saying, which is like there are elements of this movie that look really cheesy and look really fake. Right. It's 1987. And of course, you know, certain elements of our technology have advanced since then. But there's also a sense that some of this is being done on purpose because it's supposed to be a fairy tale and not just a fairy tale, but a fairy tale where everyone is in on the joke. Like it's very clearly a joke fairy tale Mm-hmm. In a similar way that you would talk about like Shrek, you know what I mean? Like this is a this is a pretend children's story within a story being told to a sick 10 year old in the, you know, in the world of this movie. Yeah. So I, I understand that, like, they might be trying to make the movie look even more fake than usual. But then you kind of run into this thing we've been talking about with Reiner for the last couple of weeks, which is I don't always know if his visual sense is up to par. Because for a good portion of this movie, it kind of looks like it's being lit with fluorescent lights, like in an office building. Like it's just, (laughs) even though they're inside of a castle, like the lighting can be very flat. And then all, you know, all of a sudden you'll get a shot like uh, Inigo Montoya kneeling with his sword in the air. And it's the, it's the greatest, most cinematic shot ever. And then you'll go back to 18 (laughs) shots in a row that looked like they were shot, you know, in somebody's garage. And it's just really hard for me to be able to parse out this movie in terms of like what's intentional and what's not. Yeah. It seems like he would have had, had to have had a something of a decent budget for this. I mean, you know, at this point he's gotten stand by me, spinal tap. Like, I I feel like it's not like he's just some indie director at this point. So it feels like he should have had a little bit of money to up the production budget a little bit. But I agree. Like there many of the sets look like built sets that have, like you said, I, I fluorescent lighting almost. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like the lighting just doesn't often make sense. And I think it's really clear when they're being fake on purpose, but then there are also times where it seems like, oh, no, they're really trying here and it just doesn't look right. I don't know. Well, and I, I, I just, you know, I think part of that's the fact that Rob Reiner comes from TV. 
Yeah. And, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily have the Hollywood pedigree. But I mean, you know, he definitely like literally has the Hollywood pedigree. We we haven't talked about, uh, you know, his dad being Carl Reiner at all the whole time we've been doing these three weeks of of Rob Reiner. I mean, he comes from Hollywood royalty. The man is, you know, uh, he's made good, but he's a nepotism baby in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, hey, man. You know, a little harsh there. Can't help who your parents are, I guess. Well, I was going to say, what's wrong with a little bit of nepotism? (laughs) (laughs) Ask the uh, offensive coordinator of the Iowa Hawkeyes. (laughs) I was going to say, look at the the Ferencz family. Oh, man. All right, Brad, it's time for us to segue into Brad Explains, which is America's favorite segment of this show. Before we get there, I do want to say. If this is your first time listening to the show, or if it's your whatever episode we're on, 300th time listening to the show, we want to encourage you, first of all, like and subscribe. We would love for you to give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. Guys, for us to be able to make money on this podcast, we have to be able to demonstrate to the advertisers that we have listeners. And the best way to show that is subscribers. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you might be listening to keep getting our episodes in your inbox each and every week. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, where you can subscribe to our podcast at three different tiers. Three, five, and seven dollars a month. At each of those tiers, you get a lot of bonus perks, uh, especially the seven dollar tier where you get unedited episodes where Brad and I get a little blue. You get episodes that are dedicated specifically to that group. So we make bonus episodes that just go to our seven dollar patrons. You also get access to a special Discord server that Brad and I are on every single day talking with the members of Film and Whiskey Nation. So you can find all that and more at patreon.com slash film whiskey. Bob, you keep using the word blue and uh, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> should I should I say blue? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Let's get into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. This was not Brad's first time seeing The Princess Bride. Which means these 60 seconds should be pretty easy for you to fit the plot into, Brad. You got a minute on the clock and go. While Fred Savage lies in his bed sick at home, his grandfather comes to tell him a fairy tale to help keep his mind off of being sick. The story is about a farm boy who is goes off to make a fortune to win his love. Uh, he is captured by a pirate. His love goes to marry the prince. The farm boy turned pirate comes back to rescue his princess in a in a series of daring adventures, and he eventually fights off death itself to make it back and rescue his true love. There you go. All right, Brad, where do you want to start today? Do you want to start with Rob Reiner? I feel like we've kind of already touched on Reiner a little bit. Do you want to keep going with Reiner? Do you want to jump into this screenplay? Do you want to start talking performances? I want to talk about the star of this movie, hmm. the uh, one and only Andre the Giant. Dude, it's not <laughs> Andre the Giant. This is Andre Rene Rusimov. Hmm. Dude, I I just all I know about this man is that he might be the largest human being to live on this earth since Goliath in biblical times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his have you ever seen the picture of him holding a beer can? Yes. 
It is yes. the most wild thing I've ever seen in my life. I've watched but, so many documentaries about Andre the Giant at this point in my life that, I mean, I've heard all the stories, right? That he would drink literally like 120 beers or something in yes. one sitting. <laughs> Which is also I mean, like, dude, you know, I, I feel bad talking about his untimely death, but like it, that might have contributed yeah, just a bit. Probably not. You know, No, come on. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, the man was 7'4", 500 plus pounds. And I'm not going to lie. He and Mandy Patinkin might have the best chemistry of any duo in any movie we have ever watched. They're just wonderful. Like, I mean, it's here's the thing. I I really feel like I'm going to be playing bad cop on this episode. And I don't mean to because this movie is charming as hell and I enjoy it so much. But of all the people you could have started talking about the performances with, Brad, you had to start (laughs) with Andre the Giant, whom whom I love and who is incredibly endearing. Yes. But thank God for subtitles on Disney Plus streaming. <laughs> like, like even with the subtitles, I had to like press pause and go back and listen again because the man's grasp on the English language is just not sound and not very it's... firm. <laughs> and, and like, like he's just really, he's not a good actor in the first place, which you could forgive because he's Andre the Giant and like, where else are you going to get a seven foot four, 500 pound person to act in your movie? But like, he he can't deliver lines like his mouth just won't make the words. No, they they won't. And <laughs> I, I think that's what makes him so perfect is the a the fact that Mandy Patinkin has such an endearing love for Andre the Giant. Like, I guess I should say Inigo and Fezzik have such a brotherhood and like a deep lasting connection Mm -hmm. that there's something about that that makes Andre the giant like you said he is charming and endearing and his accent is so bad that I don't know if I ever fully picked up on the rhyming joke right start of the movie which is a major component of the movie like it it comes back three times I think yeah and it's brilliant like it is some of the it's some of the best comedic writing and acting that I've ever seen, except for the part where, unless you have for the acting part. on. Yeah. <laughs> well, not the <laughs> acting part, just the line delivery. Yeah, There's more to yeah, acting yeah, yeah. than just, just speaking, Bob. <laughs> yeah, man, I just, I really struggle with Andre the Giant because, like you said, he and Mandy Patinkin have incredible chemistry. And the funny part of this this movie is that certain actors have to take their roles seriously for the movie to work. Like Mandy Patinkin has to play this completely straight. And even somebody like Chris Sarandon as, you know, the evil prince, he's playing it seriously. Prince what, Bob? Prince Humperdinck. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So he's playing it seriously, but he's also playing, he's hamming it up on purpose, right? Like it is an over the top villain. Whereas Mandy Patinkin is, is playing this as if he's like trying to win an Oscar in a drama. And yeah, he's taking the Spanish accent so seriously Instead of just doing like the normal Hollywood thing of like, I'm an American who's going to kind of speak with a Spanish accent and that's what you're going to get. He's like he does. the He kind of slurs his words a little bit where you normally would when you have a Spanish accent and he elides certain words together and things like that. And so at times you're like, what did Mandy Patinkin just say? And then <laughs> and so there are just whole scenes that hang in the balance 
between Mandy Patinkin and Andre the Giant, and I only understood like five words between the two of them. But you walk away from that scene still being entertained and amused. <laughs> I guess so, man. <laughs> Even though you don't know what they said. I think a fun way to do this, Brad, I'm looking through the cast list right now, and obviously there are certain people in this movie that pop up, like Billy Crystal and Carol Kane in, in extended cameos, uh, Peter Cook as the clergyman, but there's really like nine people in this movie that have speaking parts that are substantial, okay? So uh, Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Andre the Giant, you've got Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Wallace Shawn, and then Fred Savage and Peter Falk. I think that would be like the cast, if I could call them that. Yeah. I kind of want to like power rank the people in this movie. And I'd be okay. really interested to hear. Maybe the way to do it is just kind of like walk from number nine up to number one. And give me some candidates for who you think is the ninth place person in this movie. I, I was going to say, now, what are you... What are we judging on? Effectiveness within the movie? Actual just acting ability? Kind of both. I mean, like, you know, is your character interesting? Are you are you charismatic? Are you memorable? Are you a good actor? Like all those, you know, Andre the Giant okay. is the worst actor here by a lot, right? Yeah. I don't know obviously. if I would power rank him number nine in this movie. No, number nine... Number is nine is Carrie Elwes. Oh no! I was going to say number nine is Robin Wright, but I, I think this gets. She was going to be my number eight. This gets at the problem <laughs> of movies like this, like Beauty and the Beast. We talked about this. Beauty, like Belle and the Beast, are the two least interesting characters in that movie. <laughs> the The supporting roles are always more flashy and flamboyant and charismatic and memorable in movies like this. I think Carrie Elwes is phenomenal. And he has to do a lot of physical comedy, especially at the end of the movie where he can't quite walk anymore. And it reminded me of a lot of the Pratt Falls that they made like uh, Neil Patrick Harris do on How I Met Your Mother. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that going on here. So he has like one foot in kind of like the classic vaudeville style of comedy. Rob, I, Robin I Wright's you, you character. You convinced me there. Robin Wright's at the bottom. Robin Wright has <laughs> nothing to do in this movie. And she's a great actress and I love her to death. But like. You could have put a cardboard cutout of a human being in her place <laughs> and just voiced over like, no, Prince Humperdinck. And it would have had yeah. the same effect. And I, I feel like you could have done that and people would be like, yeah, it's the Princess Bride. That's why it's so funny and brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and I again, I feel bad saying that because it's not like Robin Wright does anything inherently wrong here. It's hey. just that like. She's supposed to be mopey, and she does that, and that's it. Her her stunt double does a phenomenal job of falling down that hill, though. <laughs> just her clear, just clearly male stunt double. <laughs> <laughs> With an awesome, awesome blonde wig oh on. Oh, my gosh. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's go number eight. Who would you put in here? Um, I think I'd probably put Carrie Elwes. All right. I'll, I, like, I'll I give it to you. I think he's good. I enjoy his vaudevillian humor. But similarly to Buttercup, he just kind of plays one character. He's a, he's kind of a one-note character throughout the entire thing. I, I get that. I think that this movie works significantly less well if you have an actor in here with worse comic timing. Yeah. It, 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 it's saying something about how well he's able to deliver lines like, you seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. 
Like that's it's a yeah. great line. And he just yeah. I think that's why he's probably top three for me, honestly. Man, but listen, yeah. I'll, I'll put him at I'll put him at eight. Uh oh, whoa! I didn't realize this is our combined. Uh, if you're putting him that high, well, who are you thinking in the eight? Area? I don't know, man. I feel like everyone kind of like morphs together, and then there's a couple standouts, right? Like, I don't know. We could put Fred Savage at eight. Like, he doesn't really do much except sit in the bed. Yeah, that's fine. Fred Savage at eight. Fred Savage. So who do you got at seven? I don't know, man. Um, how are you feeling about Peter Falk? Uh, he has a little bit of like a lazy eye going on, <laughs> and I freaking love it. Are he's, you is that he's, like are you allowed to say that in 2022? Are you allowed to call it a lazy eye? Is that uh, like is that like incorrect now? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just like a, a slightly unmotivated eye that's been <laughs> oppressed by his other eye. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So Peter Falk <laughs> is an incredible actor. And I, I mean, I love Columbo. I think it's really interesting to see him in this movie because he's only 60 years old in this movie. And they clearly have him made up to look much older than he is. And they yeah. don't really make him up very well. It kind of looks like how we did old age makeup in like high school when we were doing like theater. <laughs> and they would just like draw <laughs> lines on your forehead to make you look like you had deeper creases. And yeah, and yep. he's wearing this wig that is so clearly a wig. And I <laughs> that and that's one of the areas where I'm like, is this on purpose? Because this isn't the fairy tale part of the movie. Like, why is Peter Falk six, uh, who is 60 years old? I, I just don't get it. Yeah, I, I think that where he wins the day is like he's the most charming grandpa I think that has ever existed. Yeah. And he just has a way of interacting with Fred Savage that I think shows how important it is to have really experienced actors with child actors mm -hmm. to help kind of draw a good performance out of them. Because I, I think that the the scene, you know, there's only a few of them, but the scenes between Savage and Falk are, are really, actually really incredible. And it, it honestly makes me think about the way we've been scoring our directors I feel like Reiner's highest category might end up be the way he works with actors because mm. it just seems like he continues to get great performances out of people. All right. I will put Carrie Elwes at six because I don't want to put him too high based on how you All feel right. about him. If you will put Andre the Giant at five. I'll put him at five. All right. I, I think that's fair. All right. So that gives us four people to talk about here. We've got Wallace Shawn. We've got Christopher Guest. Chris Sarandon and Mandy Patinkin. And I'm going to kind of go in the opposite order here, Brad, because I'm thinking about uh, this was going to be my big reveal. I think Christopher Guest might steal this whole movie. And I'm really surprised to say that because his character is like a nothing character and he's kind of also hamming it up, but also not hamming it up. I don't know how to explain it. It's it's like it's like if you took Jeremy Irons as Scar in The Lion King. Mm -hmm. but told him to do it as subdued as possible. So there are still elements of his character that are over the top and campy, but he does it in such a like restrained way. He never like gets very emotional throughout the movie. And he, when he's menacing, he's really menacing. And when he has a line that makes him look like a buffoon, he, he says it in such a straight way that it, it almost takes you a second. And and I think honestly, too, part of it is like he came up in A Few Good Men and we forgot to talk about him. Like he's in that movie for a hot second. And it's so yeah. it's just so interesting to see 
you know, Nigel from Spinal Tap show up in A Few Good Men <laughs> and then show up in this movie and play three completely different characters that are so well constructed that you forget that it's Nigel from Spinal Tap. Yeah, I was going to say Christopher Guest was my number two. Mm. Uh, he just has an incredible presence about him that even when he's next to, you know, Prince Humperdinck, it feels like he's the one who's really in control. Like he's the master hot mind behind the whole situation. And I think it's because of what you said that he he is almost like clinically devoid of emotions. Mm, yeah. Like he has this psychotic killer feel about him where you're like, but the fact that he's in a comedy and he's just interested in the science of pain and suffering, you're kind of like, he's like over the top evil, like clearly the most evil person out of everybody in this movie. And yet the way he delivers the line fascinating, (laughs) just, just (laughs) as, as Carrie Elwes is just screaming on the torture machine, just, is brilliant. And so, yeah, I, I'm with you, man. I, I think uh, Guest is a phenomenal part of this movie. So would Patinkin be your number one then? Dude, when his scene, when Guest stabs him a few times and like throws the knife into his gut and he just slowly builds and builds and builds, I like got the freaking chills, man. <laughs> and, when, and when he tells him to beg, yes. he goes, beg, beg for your life. He goes, anything, anything, I'll give you money. I'll give you power, everything I have and more. And the way he delivers, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. It's such a good line, dude. It's worthy of like the most epic of epic movies. It's a better line than, hello, my my name is Inigo Montoya. It's a better line than, you seem a decent fellow, I hate to kill you. It's it's the best line. It's better than Inconceivable, which is the big quote Mm -hmm. from this movie, right? It's the best line in the film. And easily it's it's because there's such an emotional payoff, but it also makes me wonder if William Goldman is the one who wrote the son of a line in a few good men. Because remember, we talked about how even though that is a Sorkin script, Goldman came in and touched it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I thought my favorite line in a few good men is when he says you're under arrest, you son of a like. So maybe maybe he just has the key to good lines and it's just ending it with you're a son of a It's, it seems like a pretty easy way to do it. For So for all you young screenwriters out there, <laughs> t- take note. Uh, I do think that Patinkin also gets the second best line of the movie, which in my opinion is the best comedic line. When they're on the boat sailing across the Sea of Eels, and, and he looks back and he goes, I wonder if they're using the same wind as us. <laughs> Patinkin, <laughs> the thing about Patinkin too is like, underrated comic timing and he has my favorite mm-hmm. comedic moment of the whole movie where he's he's uh sword fighting with carrie elvis and then mm-hmm. he's like who are you carrie elvis says no one of consequence and he says i must know and elvis Dude. says get used to disappointment <laughs> and just the way he goes okay and then starts yeah. fighting again it is a perfect reaction shot like it's just yeah. so good you could not read the line okay better than that <laughs> No, it's absolutely perfect. And I think that it's for so many of these reasons that I I think that Mandy Patinkin is easily the best. Like Inigo is the best character and Patinkin is the best performance in this movie. 
That leaves us two people to talk about real quick. Uh, Wallace Shawn and Chris Sarandon. Let's get Wallace Shawn out of the way. And I don't mean to say it like that, but the reason you have Wallace Shawn in this movie is to be Wallace Shawn. And yeah, he like he is a brilliant writer and actor in many, Mm -hmm. many other films besides this one. Uh, He's in here to be like the the stereotypical version of Wallace. It's almost like having Gilbert Gottfried in Aladdin. Yes. Like he's just there to be Gilbert. I was going to say he feels a lot like Gilbert Gottfried and it's, it's just Wallace Shawn. And that's what you need him to be in this movie. Kind of the same way Andre the giant doesn't have enough grasp of the English language or acting capabilities to be anything more than Andre the giant. Yeah. And he's perfect because of that. I, think, I will say, I think, is this our second Wallace Shawn movie? Was he in Marriage Story? Oh, yeah. I forgot that he was in Marriage Story. There you go. Two two Wallace Shawn movies down. There you go. It's also our second movie featuring Chris Sarandon. Do you remember the first? Ooh, Sarandon. What else? Man, he, I he can't played, think of what he was in. He played Al Pacino's lover in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, snap. Yes, that was Chris Sarandon. Wait, that was Chris Sarandon? Because he's on the phone in the barbershop talking to Pacino in the... Oh, That's Chris Sarandon. I did not know that. Right? Talk about two wildly different performances. And I think it really gets at how good of an actor Sarandon is and how versatile he is. Uh, Yeah. Incredibly good looking guy, like really in control here. And he's doing like he's doing a James Mason impression. You know, if you remember James Mason from North by Northwest, the bad guy in North mm-hmm. by Northwest, he's doing yep. James Mason and he kind of looks like James Mason. And so it works really, really well. I just I think he's fantastic in this movie. He's he's batting a thousand every time he comes into the film. He's funny when he needs to be funny. He's a coward when he needs to be a coward. He's intimidating when he needs to be intimidating. And I think he's a great, you know, again, to go back to the Shrek comparison, you know, they have Lithgow as uh, as Farquaad in that movie. <laughs> and I think that he's doing his best Farquaad here. Right. And and perhaps even yeah. better than Lithgow. Yeah. My my question would be, how much funnier would it have been if Wallace Shawn was Humperdinck? Because I feel like that's the better <laughs> Farquaad comparison. Yeah, that's kind of true, actually. <laughs> Five foot one Wallace Shawn out there doing his best. <laughs> All right, man, I think we're in a good place to hit pause. We'll come back from the break. We'll talk about this, you know, quote unquote, perfectly structured script a little bit more on Rob Reiner, and then we'll get into our final scores. But first, let's try this Bush Mills Red Bush. What do you say? Let's get to it. Film and Whiskey Nation, do you ever think about awards? Of course you do. You drink whiskey and watch movies, which means that you know that nothing is validated until a group of random people say, hey, we love what you're doing. The awesome thing about Doc Swinson's whiskey is that it isn't just some group of schlubs that are giving them awards. They have been winning attention from some of the most important whiskey experts that you can imagine. They've been voted best distillery in Washington state by the New York International Spirits Competition. They've been voted the best independent bottler by the Ascot Awards, as well as the best finished bourbon from the Ascot Awards for their La Menta Exploratory Cask. Their Exploratory Cask series is where they release some of the most fascinating and adventurous experiments. If you're ever checking out Doc's lineup and see a white label, there's a really good chance that that's the only time you'll see that bottle, so make sure you snatch it up. 
Doc Swinson's has been offering just phenomenal finished and blended whiskeys for quite some time now. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. All right, today we are checking out Bushmills Red Bush. Uh, Brad asked that we can immediately get the sexual connotation of the name out of the way. Uh, so there it is. You know, we're going to talk about Red Bush today. And uh, <laughs> next week, we're going to talk about Bushmills Black Bush. So depending on your preference of color, uh, join us for more Bush conversation down the road. <laughs> is that a good enough disclaimer for you? Are you satisfied now, Brad? I'm, I'm very satisfied, Bob. <laughs> All right, wonderful. <laughs> so Bushmills Red Bush is, I mean, like, if I can be frank here, it's kind of just a variation on regular Bushmills. So it's non-age stated. It is a blend of uh, single malt whiskey and grain whiskey that is aged for at least three years. And it's aged in used bourbon barrels. So regular Bush Mills is aged in a combo of bourbon and sherry. Red Bush is aged solely in bourbon casks and their first fill. So like they've been used for bourbon and nothing else. They get shipped over to Ireland. They age them there. The Black Bush, which we'll try next week, is aged solely in sherry. So it's kind of like you're getting one half of the process, but it's going to have a little bit of that kind of they're hoping that this is like a gateway into Irish whiskey for people who only drink bourbon. And I really like that approach, Brad, because it is sometimes hard to convince people to try Irish whiskey or to try scotch if they're only used to that brown sugar vanilla thing that you get from bourbon. Yeah, and I, I think that Irish whiskey has an incredible amount of experience to offer any of you bourbon drinkers out there. Mm -hmm. So I am I'm always beating the drum for my Irish whiskeys, which have always kind of had a, an attraction for me. And so, yeah, this Bushmills Redbush, uh, so far, my experience with it has been pretty positive, Bob. I have not tried it yet, so I'm trying it live on air. I'll give a few nosing notes if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. So, I mean, like a lot of Irish whiskeys, I'm getting a ton of melon on this. I think it's, it's like a lot of honeydew. There's actually a little bit of tropical like pineapple for me as well. Uh, but more than anything, it smells like orange juice to me, like fresh squeezed orange juice, almost like a... Um, uh, like, like a mimosa, like it has a little bit of that like champagne -y thing going on, too. I will say, Brad, that after sitting with this for a couple minutes, there is a really, really faint, almost vinegary note for me. And it kind of smells like a can of pickled beets, which is not a food that I'm a huge fan of. And it's just a, like a little wisp of it underneath everything else. So it's really nice. It's like pineapple and orange juice and I'm digging it. And then there's just a little bit of beet. And then I get reminded of Dwight Schrute, which is not what I want to be thinking about when I'm drinking whiskey. <laughs> so I'm kind of torn about this one. Man, I, what, what kind of score would you give it? I think I'd still give it like a seven and a half, but it was approaching like an eight and a half before. Okay. I was going to say, I really like this. Uh, for me, it's honey. There's some brown sugar notes I get. The barley starts to come through. It's a little bit raw. Um, and then, like you said, I think honeydew is the right note. It's it is it's melony, but not a super strong, overpowering nose. Um, I gave it an 8 out of 10 on the nose. I, I think it's pleasant, but I, I'm curious to see where it goes. Especially after last week drinking the their you know regular offering and and really feeling like it was like kind of a white wine mm -hmm. feel, mm -hmm. I, I'm curious to see how much more 
bourbony or, you know, even more like classic Irish whiskey, this one will come out to be. Yeah, for me, I just took a sip as you were talking, Brad, and this one still has a lot of that white wine character, but this time around, it is like a really dry, uh, sparkling wine for me. Like it, it reminds me of champagne when I drink it. And there is there's a little bit more sweetness here than there was last week, which I really like. It's certainly not a sweet whiskey at all, but I think a little bit of that bourbon character has been imparted here. It's way spicier than last week's was like from the from the get go tip of my tongue. There's a prickliness here that wasn't there last week. I I keep saying last week. I guess it was, I think, two weeks ago that we tried this one. Mm. Um, So anyway, you know what I mean? But I get a lot of uh, citrus peel on this, Brad. There's like a grapefruit character to this on the back for me, too. It's not like all of the bitterness that you get with grapefruit. But it does remind me of drinking orange juice or drinking grapefruit juice to go along with that kind of champagne thing. I guess I just have mimosas on my mind right now. But <laughs> but this tastes like the do. whiskey equivalent of a mimosa to me. Yeah, I, for me, it was like honey drizzled over a grapefruit hmm. with like a, a little bit of a mint sprig kind of like put on the side, mm-hmm. but like crushed a little bit. So you smell it. Yeah. Like that is what I got on the palate here. It, it's a little bit of a refreshing mint, but then all sorts of honey mixed with grapefruit. And then it, it kind of dries out by the end of it and hits a few of those white wine notes that we'd been talking about with our last iteration of Bushmills. Bob, I really like this a lot. I, I, do I think too. I'm going to stay like right at an eight because this is really solid whiskey. I'm going to give it an eight on the taste as well. And the same on finish because it, it hmm, what's the word, Brad? It's not bitter. I guess it is kind of bitter in that citrus fruit way. It has that grapefruit character to it. And it really does remind me of toasting someone on New Year's with a glass of champagne. But I don't like champagne that much. And I would much rather have this in a glass to toast somebody with on New Year's. Mm -hmm. It's really, really good. It's light. It's bubbly. It has a sort of effervescence to it. I'm really shocked that this is coming out of bourbon barrels because it doesn't really remind me of bourbon at all. It reminds me of drinking, you know, a screwdriver or a mimosa or something with orange mm-hmm. and champagne in it. I'm a big fan. I'm going to give it an eight on the finish. Yeah, I, I think I'll come down a tiny bit on the finish just just to say that it doesn't last very long and there's not quite enough of a lingering palate that like really makes me in love with it. But I, I'm the, I'm right there with you, man. It, it has all of the notes we've been talking about so far. The the citrus, a little bit of honey to finish. It gets a little bit more oaky at the end, but not enough to to sour it. So yeah, seven and a half on the finish. I'll give it an eight and a half on balance, Bob. I think I'll do. I, I, yeah, I, I think I'll do the same. Um, go ahead and finish your thought. I'm sorry. No, you're good. I I, I just think that balance wise, you get what you are expecting throughout the entire drink. And I think, you know, in order to hit the 9, 10 out of 10 type of area, you almost have to transcend that and, like, be more complex than initially you think it is. But with this one, man, I I mean, there's nothing to complain about here balance-wise. No, and is this the best Irish whiskey we've ever had? No, but for what it is and kind of as a self-contained thing, it balances everything really, really well. Everything I got on the nose was there on the palate. Everything that was on the palette was there on the finish. It's a super consistent product, and I really appreciate that. So I'm also going to go eight and a half on balance. And that brings us to value. Now, Brad, as you know, our value score is not dependent on simply is it cheap or is it expensive? It is 
does the quality of what we just drank make sense at the price point? Or even more, is it a steal at the price point? And at in the state of Ohio, Brad, I'm pretty sure this is like in the 20s, right? for a 750 milliliter bottle of this is a freaking steal. Like so much so that I thought this was like 28 or $29 at $22. This is a nine out of 10 value, Brad. It's a nine and a half for me, Bob. Yeah. Uh, Like it's pretty close to being a perfect value. If it was 20 or below, I would give it a 10 out of 10. Uh, 2250 is a steal for this whiskey, guys. If you have not tried Bushmills Redbush yet, I am really, really impressed. And there's like, you can't ask for much more out of a bottle of whiskey that costs less than $25. No, no. I'm coming out to a 41 out of 50, Brad. What are you coming out to? 41.5. Wow. So we're at a 41.25 or an 82 and a half out of 100. This is a big deal, man. It's pretty rare for a whiskey this inexpensive to score this highly on our show. Yeah. Well, and the big thing is I I always try to score the first four categories with no regard to the value category and allow value to adjust the score as need be. Mm -hmm. You know, if if this was a $90 bottle of whiskey, it would get a two out of 10 and be in like the mid 30s, the low 30s. But because it is a $22.50 bottle of whiskey, it got a nine and a half. (laughs) And that bumped it up to where I think it should be. This is a huge step up from the regular Bushmills white label. You know, so much so that I think we had some complaints about Bushmills last week. I have no complaints about this. This is an immediate go out and purchase this, even if you're not an Irish whiskey fan, because it is out of the ordinary enough that I think this should be something that you need to give a try to. Yeah. And if you haven't watched The Princess Bride yet, you need to go out and give it a try. So, Bob, how about you say we get back into finishing our conversation about The Princess Bride? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Bushmills Red Bush, a whiskey that we were just over the top about, Bob. I'm still I'm over here like Googling about it right now because I had no idea it was this good. (laughs) Why is no one yeah, talking and, about this? It's it's I available everywhere all the time for less than $25, and it's phenomenal. Mm, I don't know, Bob. It's not very exclusive. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what it is. We need to create <laughs> scarcity, artificial scarcity. There. We need What we need is for Bushmills Red Bush to get acquired by Buffalo Trace. There you go. That's it. If you put this in the BTAC collection and called it like George O'Stag. Irish whiskey. Dude. <laughs> George O'Stag. It could sell for $900 and people would finally understand. Oh, man. Well, speaking of uh, BTAC, I'd like to thank our new sponsor, Buffalo <laughs> Trace, for sponsoring our two facts and a falsehood section. All right. Two facts and a falsehood. This is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me, all of them as fact, little tidbits about the making of this movie. And also, all of them not sponsored by Buffalo n- Trace. N- actually, none to, of them. To, spon- be, to be clear. <laughs> no free advertising on this podcast, <laughs> Buffalo Trace. So uh, two of them are actually true. One of them is made up by Brad. I have to guess which one is the falsehood. Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, Christopher Reeve, famous for playing Superman, was at one point interested in playing the role of Wesley. Hmm. 
Fact number two, when Count Wait, that's Rugen... The whole, that's the whole fact? That's it, man. Oh, usually there's like a, you know, but this this happened, blah, 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 blah. So no, I thought something no, was coming that's there. That's it. All right. Yeah. Fact number two, when Count Rugen hits Wesley over the head, Carrie Elwes told Christopher Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Guest hit Elwes so hard that he knocked him unconscious, lacerating the top of his head. Oh, my gosh. It was very violent. Fact number three, the line, never mess with a Sicilian when death is on the line, was one of Goldman's favorites who said it was a direct quote of one of his childhood friends. Wow. I have no idea. Fact number one sounds so bland that I can't tell if it's real or not. I mean, like, okay, cool. Like, Christopher Reeve was interested. <laughs> Great. Like, I'm glad I know that now. Fact number two. Huh. I think they could all be false. Is it possible that all three of these are false? There is 0% chance <laughs> Okay, of that. all right. I think I'm just going to have to guess one because... I think I'm going to be wrong regardless. I'm going to say that two is the falsehood. That Count Rugen hit Wesley over the head so hard that he knocked him unconscious for real? Yes. That, Bob, is a 100% true fact. Oh, nice. Yeah. What was the falsehood, Brad? Uh, The line never messes with Sicilian when death is on the line. Was not one of William Goldman's favorites? It wasn't. I mean- Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. There is no record of it being his favorites, and he did not say it was a direct quote from one of his childhood friends. As far as I know, hmm. I made that up. What a great line. Dude. I just it's, love it. It's such a great line. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I, I'm, I'm taking the L this week. I'm okay with that because I'm still way above 500 on the year. Yeah, you're killing it, man. Let's get back rough, into- It was a rough start for you. It was a really rough start. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about this script and about Reiner's direction of it. This is the third movie that William Goldman and Rob Reiner have worked on together that has been on this show. Like, I had no idea that William Goldman uh, did revisions on A Few Good Men when we picked that for the show. But, like, it's pretty obvious that the two of them really enjoyed working together and that Reiner understands if nothing else, how to put the actors in a position to deliver this Goldman dialogue better than almost anybody. Yeah. Goldman is like really famous for a reason, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, he's fun fact. Great at writing scripts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that is easily the strength of this movie is the fact that a the actors are committed like every single actor is committed to this script and B that elevates this script to the next level mm-hmm. because it's already a spectacular script. Like the, the lines that he writes are some of the funniest of any movie, you know, like to, to throw things way, way back for those of you who remember when we did our test episode on the film, uh, Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy, we talked about how that is, Easily one of the most quotable movies of all time. Bob, I think Princess Bride might be more quotable. Yeah, and it's it, it gets to the fact that they're two different styles of comedy, right? Where Adam McKay is kind of the master of, uh, I don't know, wrangling chaos into something. Like that whole movie is improvised or a good portion of it. And they cobble together different takes to make what you see in the final product. 
this is not an improvised movie, right? I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, maybe Billy Crystal's character is doing some improv there, but this is an example of really, really great joke writing and people delivering it with perfect timing. It's much closer to Billy Wilder than it is to Anchorman. Yeah, there, there's a element of snappiness to the movie that feels much more like old Hollywood than mm-hmm. it does like new. Yeah. And I think that's I think that the other thing is the lines are incredibly snappy, but they are delivered in such a laconic manner by by Inigo Montoya, by Carrie Elwes, that it has a slow cadence, even though they they're really fast one liners. Yeah. And I think that, that that dissonance almost serves to make it even funnier. All right, so I think this is a good point to kind of tip my hand a little bit about my overall feelings on this movie. I respect this movie. I respect the script. I think it's clever. I chuckle a lot. I do a little smirk. I nod my head and say, "Uh, I see what you did there. This is not a movie that really makes me laugh out loud. Every once in a while it will. And I actually watched this movie with my five-year-old. This was like one of the first movies I've ever shown him where like, you know, someone gets stabbed and dies. This was a big deal for for my son to watch. He thought it was hilarious. He loved it. And so it's really, it was great to watch it with a younger person who had never seen it before. And the jokes really worked. And, you know, uh, Andre the Giant's rhyming thing killed in my household. Um, (laughs) But at the end of the day... I think this is why I think Spinal Tap is such a better movie than this. And, and I know that it's two completely different styles of comedy. Spinal Tap makes me laugh out loud. And this movie gets more of a, a an appreciative chuckle every now and then. And so it's really hard for me to hold this movie in as high of esteem as other people do. That's crazy to me, Bob. Yeah. I, it feels like to me this movie should have all the kinds of humor that you're looking for. In a movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I'm kind of surprised that this one didn't hit you the right way. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Some Like It Hot that way. To, to go back to Wilder again. That's a great movie. It's it's funny. It's so well written. It, it's almost perfectly written. And yet, I think there's an element of because it is all written down. Because there doesn't seem to be any actual joking going on. You know what I mean? Like... I'm not saying I need improvisation to make me laugh, but sometimes the staginess of delivering jokes that are pre-written in a movie just doesn't work quite as well for me. And so I like The Apartment way better than I like Some Like It Hot. And again, I know The Apartment's a much more dramatic movie, but there's just something more to appreciate there for me. Whereas Some Like It Hot is a very, very well-made movie that doesn't really go anywhere under the surface of what it's presenting. And that's kind of the same thing here. Maybe I'm just old and I'm a stick in the mud and I'm no fun anymore. (laughs) But this movie has just never quite done it for me the way that it seems to for other people. Well, maybe uh, maybe let's make it a double. Give you a chance to point towards a movie that you feel like does it just a little bit better than. Oh, that's a good one. I have not even thought about what I would make this a double with. Do you have yours in mind so I can not listen to you and think about it while you talk? Yeah, Bob, I have been thinking about the movie, and I think that there's another children's film that is similar in tone and in its uh, content. We mentioned it once earlier. I think I'm going to pair this with Shrek. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like it's an obvious 
pairing for this, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, I think Shrek's a little more mean spirited than this movie is. It is. You know what it, I mean? It, I think one of the things hates... I don't like about Shrek is that it, yeah, go ahead and finish your thought. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say it hates Disney. It does. Just so much. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to, to like its own source material either. Like it doesn't like fairy tales. Whereas I think this movie ultimately what what really saves this movie is that it's not just making fun of fairy tales for the point of making fun of fairy tales and saying aren't these dumb it's ultimately about the power of a story and how stories like this bring people together and that grandfather and grandson bookends on this movie really i i I mean that's what makes you feel the warm fuzzies about this movie and i think that's why i i mean i definitely like this better than shrek there's a lot of ways you could go with making this a double. Like I said, I, I think it would go really well with a movie like Some Like It Hot. It would go really well with the original uh, Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. I think it has that sort of swashbuckling thing going on here. Um, I think I'm going to pair it up with a movie based on movies that the script is perfect, but that I still don't really care for. And it is Back to the Future, where oh. I think Back to the Future has like actual problematic elements to it that don't fly in 2022. And this movie doesn't really have those, but it's a movie that on paper, literally on paper should work like gangbusters for me and how people talk and, and, and write and uh, worship at the altar of these two scripts and how perfectly structured they are and how there's a payoff for everything that happens. And yet, even though it's perfectly structured, I still don't think it's anywhere near approaching a perfect movie. Both really enjoyable, both, you know, entertaining on surface level, but, you know, or we could just call it the double of movies that everyone else on Earth likes that Bob doesn't care for. And here's why Bob's wrong. And you could have a double feature of those. So there you go. I'm going to go Princess Bride and Back to the Future. (laughs) Sounds good, man. You know, Bob, I've been thinking about this. You know, we'll make it a double. Uh, for a while now, I think I'm going to compare this and pair it up with a movie called Stardust. Hmm. Have you ever seen Stardust, Bob? I have not ever seen Stardust, Bob. Yeah, it came out in 2007. Uh, it's an action adventure movie about a young man who promises the woman that he loves that he will go retrieve a fallen star. And he, he goes forth into this magical realm and goes on a grand adventure to to find it and he learns a little bit about himself and honestly i think it's almost like the movie version of what happens to wesley in between him leaving buttercup and coming back to buttercup Mm. interesting so i'm a big i'm a big fan i think it's a good a good pairing for uh for the princess bride all right brad it is time for us to give final scores on this movie i'll go first since i just said that you know, this is not my favorite film. I think, again, on paper, this is like an eight and a half, nine out of ten. But it just doesn't. It's one of those movies where I watch it. I smile. I say that was cute. That was well made. And then I forget about it. And it just doesn't have the staying power in my own mind that it seems to have for other people. I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of ten. I think it's it's competently directed. It has a brilliant screenplay. I think a lot of the people in it have insane comic timing but like am i wanting to put this on every day not really so 
for me, I think just my own personal enjoyment of it, it's a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah, Bob, I, I think that the difference between you and I on this movie is that I just, everything worked for me in this film. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's it's nothing more than it tries to be, but it is perfect at what it tries to be. And so for me, I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of 10. I, I think it's one of the funnier movies we've ever had on the podcast. And I, I think that Patinkin's performance single-handedly bumps this up at least a half a point. For, for sure. Me. For sure. All right. So there you have it. We are coming out to an eight out of 10 on average. But we'd like to know what you think. Is this one of those movies that you've watched ever since you were a kid and you hold it very near and dear to your heart? Is this a movie that doesn't work for you? Kind of like with me. Uh, you can let us know on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, the listeners of the Film & Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join the conversation, you can check out a link to the Discord at the end of every one of our show notes. All right. Next week, we are visiting one of the most famous, most highly regarded directors of all time, David Lean. And we're kicking it off with a movie that is considered one of the best ever made, 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. Brad, we, we're taking a very, very hard turn from uh, from Rob Reiner into David Lean. Yeah, and I'm incredibly excited for it. We'll be back next week with Lawrence of Arabia. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>